All right, Nijay Gupta, uh, my dear friend, we are back. Uh, AJ Swoboda here. We are in this episode going to continue our conversation from our last time together where we tried our best to talk about the true humanity of Jesus uh, in light of his divinity, what that looked like, and how doubt uh, may or may not have played a part in his human experience. It was, I thought, a very good conversation. But today we want to kind of talk more uh, particularly about the Bible. Yep. So uh, for me, in my my journey, kind of part of my story is I met Jesus when I was 16 years old. I was in... um, in in the midst of a, a fairly personal, um, a very painful traumatic crisis in my own life, my parents had gone through a divorce a few years earlier. Um, had been going through, you know, I'm an only child, so I didn't have a lot of friends. Identity crisis, didn't really know who I was. And when I was 16 years old, I uh, actually was in my math class in high school and overheard these two girls arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They were they had been reading this book called the Left Behind series, <laughs> and I accidentally overheard people talking about Jesus. I went home. I'd never thought about Jesus. And I sat down and read the New Testament for the first time. My dad had given me a copy of the Bible. And I had a very powerful experience with the resurrected Christ. Uh, he, um, I met Jesus. I became a Christian. And my first experience at the time was I had a girlfriend who took me to our church. We started going to church together. And started reading the Bible. Uh, I would say, man, I, I those two three years, I just was a voracious. I ate the Bible. That's all I did. It was yeah. just, you know, I was this. Um, they say about young Calvinists, you know, you got to put them in a like, what do they call them the the cage stage where you know you got to put them in for a while because <laughs> they get out, they get kind of feisty. I was kind of in evangelical cage stage, as it were, and just loved God, loved the Bible, was infatuated with Jesus, and. Uh, my freshman year in college, I was a student at the University of Oregon uh, in Eugene, where we are, uh, where we live now. And I was reading the Gospel of John for devotions. I had kind of this reading plan I was doing in the morning, and I came across this weird anomaly that I couldn't, it just stopped me in my tracks. I was reading John 5, mm-hmm. and I'm reading the early section, and all of a sudden notice there's no fourth verse. It goes from John Five three to five five. Right. It just jumps over a whole verse, and I said this was pre-internet, you know, Twitter days. I couldn't. There's no podcast that I could go listen to, so um, there was a missing verse, and I was sort of. I remember actually going back to the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, and and showing them the Bible and saying like, I paid for the whole <laughs> right. thing, you know, and you left a verse out, and they they didn't have an answer for me. And so at the time, there was this guy on the radio. Uh, he wasn't the Bible answer man, but he was kind of a Bible answer man kind of guy. Yeah. And I had, I'd had i listened to this guy for years, and I um, uh, decided to call him up, uh, to call the Bible answer guy. It wasn't the Bible answer guy, but a guy like the Bible answer guy. And I called him up. And I'm on the live radio, and I they say, hey, welcome to the show. And th- basically what they did was they took, an- they took questions and then gave answers. They were the answer people. And I asked this question. I said, okay, I've got my Bible here. I'm a brand new Christian. And it's missing a verse. It's missing John 5, 4. Right. And I could hear the, the two hosts sitting in the office as I'm listening on the radio in my car and then and then live at the same time. I could hear them. You could hear paper flipping. Like they were flipping yeah, through the Gospels trying to figure out what, what, what was going on. And they 
they say, hey, great question. Thank you. And they say, we can't answer on air. We're going to send you a, a personal tape. We're going to send yeah. you a tape. So I say, great. Thank you for the time and I, and the, the, the interview. And I get a tape about two weeks later. And uh, the two Bible answer guys um, say, um, <clears throat> they say, we're really glad you called in, but here's what we want. We think you should do. We, we think uh, you shouldn't ask these kinds of questions and wow. trust God and move forward. Keep reading your Bible, but don't worry about it. And for, for anybody that has wrestled with the nature of the Bible and what the Bible is, I'm sitting here with a New Testament scholar. I'm a theologian. I have a very high view of scripture mm-hmm. to this day, as you do. Yeah. Um, we both have a very high view of the inspiration of scripture. Mm-hmm. It is what God wants it to be. Uh, it's the, it's not littered with errors. Uh, it is it is a document written by people that God inspired. Yeah. Um, but something about that response really hit me the wrong way. Right. And here's why it hit me the wrong way. It was a subtle invitation to, to leave the questions at the door. Yeah. As though the Bible or God could not handle these questions. Now, any New Testament scholar worth their salt knows John 5 4 has a very interesting history. Right. They found, you know, years ago it was a it was a, a a section of John that clearly was added in the later manuscripts. It's not a part of the earlier manuscripts. And so the Bible translators did the very right thing that they could do, and they put it from the text to the paragraph. Uh, below in italics or something says late earlier manuscripts do not attest to this whole thing. So there's a a legitimate reason why it's not there. But, you know, when you're a young 19 year old Christian and you come across a part of the Bible that's not there. And then all of a sudden you're told by the Bible answer, people don't ask questions. What that did in my soul was it said, um, don't ask questions. And actually it wasn't until I got to tell him this uh, a few years ago, I was invited to go to the Missio Alliance conference and be, introduce N.T. Wright. Um, and it was, th- what, a, what an honor to get wow. to introduce him to this conference. Um, but in my introduction, told the story of uh, that year, somebody had given me his book, The Last Word, mm-hmm. which is his approach to bibliology and, and the Bible. And honestly, that book kept me in the faith. I mean, yeah. that, that book saved my faith in essence. And I got to say that to him. But here's what I suspect this is all this this why here's here's why this matters is when we have questions about the Bible to which there are legitimate responses that do not take away from its inspiration, we are often told, don't ask those questions. Yeah. So you're a New Testament scholar. You know, and by the way, let's just name this. Uh it would be easy right now to just sort of get all apologetics about this <laughs> and just try to fix it all. When in reality, you and I both know this to be the case. There are things about the Bible that still keep me up at night. Mm-hmm. There are things in the Bible that keep you up at night. Yeah. There are perplexing parts of the Bible that not, neither of us know what to do with. And those are hard moments. Those are hard spaces. Those are hard experiences. And I've come to the place of believing the Bible is inspired, but my understanding of it is not. Mm-hmm. And that often it takes a lifetime to wrestle with. And but this is meditative literature. It's intended to cause a lifetime of reflection and like t- treating it like compost, right? You turn it over and over and you keep over and over trying to understand it. But those moments when parts of the Bible don't make sense, they're hard and they provide, provide more questions than answers. That's hard stuff. Yeah. That is really hard. Um, and, you, you know, you can YouTube it and find a bunch of apologetics videos <laughs> to try to make it all better. 
Uh, but at the end of the day, um, that stuff hurts. It's painful. It's difficult. Have you had that experience? Yeah. My, you know, I, I, when I went to seminary, I was so green. I didn't know anything about anything. My, the Bible, you know, metaphorically that I took with me to seminary was written by hand by God. That God wrote it. Yeah. God wrote it. Uh, it, it, you know, no contradictions, perfectly matched up, um, was this nice, neat document. Um, and, and I can have my devotions and I can learn about the things of God. And the seminar I went to was very faith affirming, was not in any way wanting to denigrate, uh, you know, the, the infallibility of the Bible. But once you start getting into the details of what is the Bible, how did we get it? Who wrote it? You start getting in the thick of all the messiness. So a couple things come to mind. One is, um, something called textual criticism. Yeah. So textual criticism is this, uh, is the academic study of the manuscripts that we have of the Bible. So let's say the new Testament. So let's say we have, I don't know, 50, 60,000, um, manuscripts, fragments of things from different centuries. And we use that material to try to get back to this theoretical original document of Galatians or Acts or whatever. And when we read our, you know, onion skin, leather bound Bible, you know, we read this NIV text or ESV or whatever it is. Most Christians don't realize the labor and work behind that to get to the Greek text upon which, from which we translate that into English, into NIV or NRSV or whatever it is. And I, you know, took courses where we studied textual criticism, where we start to see how all those manuscripts are different. Now, they're not completely different, right? We wouldn't have the Bible today if the manuscripts were completely different from one another, all the copies of documents. Um, but they are, there are so many differences. They're called variants. And I remember how shattering that was to me mm. to live with all this unknown about, you know, so there are these committees, these academic committees that have to basically decide, looking at all these variants, which one goes into that kind of widely used hypothetical Greek text that we all use for our research that are the basis for the translations. So we call that the NA28, Nestle Aland, or the United Bible Society 5, version 5. Um I mean, basically, those are the dominant versions, yep. but they come from this study of these manuscripts. And AJ, I know you know this, but I feel like the you know the everyday person in the pew doesn't know this that there are some parts of the New Testament where we're just not sure what the original reading was. Yep, yep. It's not huge things; it's not major doctrines, but there are so many little things uh, that was hard for me to really imagine this messy process of figuring out yes. what goes in the Bible. I don't want anyone to lose heart on the basis of that. I feel like the vast majority of the New Testament is discernible from what we have. But um I've struggled that, you know, I I did a I did a study of the Lord's Prayer, the most well-known text of the whole Bible. And there's this Greek word in there, epiousias. And I realized through my research, um, we actually have no idea what the word means. Mm. 
Literally, we literally don't know what it means. It's used so rarely. So now you're wondering, well, what do we translate it as? We translate it as daily. Give us this day our daily bread. But that's just a guess. Mm. So sometimes we're guessing. And if you believe in a Bible that was written by the finger of God and given to us, you know, shipped out and leather bound, um, it is shattering to start to realize there is some messiness with the Bible. You're talking about John 5. Uh, you also have the ending of Mark. Yep. The ending of Mark is a textual critical issue. The woman caught in adultery. In we John. don't know how the gospel of Mark really ends. Yeah. There's something called the short ending. Then there's the long ending. Then there's a the longer ending. There are manuscripts that uh, give uh, you know credence to some of these different versions. But at the end of the day, how do we actually know? You just mentioned John uh, 7 and 8, the woman caught in adultery. I get the question from students, should I preach that passage? Is it part of scripture? And you know what my answer is? I don't know. How do you react to that? Well, I mean, so so actually, you know, I, I preach, that's one of my favorite passages to preach. And for me, when I think about why I would, is that there's nothing in that story that violates anything else that we know right. about Jesus from the New Testament. In fact, it only intensifies our understanding of the love of Christ. Um, do you mention to the see, people in the that's pew? The, that's the thing is when we're teaching on those texts, though, we don't we don't mention these 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 issues, and we shouldn't because it distract. In some sense, it distracts from the message that we're attempting to communicate about the gospel and the good news of Jesus. But what you and I experience, I see this all the time in my undergraduate students, is students who have never, ever, ever in their formation, their Christian formation, been introduced to the idea that the process of the Bible uh, and its formation is, is a messy process. And so what happens is they come to university, they take a religious studies professor who doesn't care at all about faith formation and uses that as a kind of battering ram against the living faith. It, it leads me actually to believe that one of the most important things we can do as leaders and Christians in the church um, is to talk about these things with people earlier on in their faith yes, formation and absolutely. not wait until they watch a Bart Ehrman YouTube clip <laughs> and all of a sudden they're done with their faith because they had somebody who doesn't have the living faith who's pointed them out something in the Bible that's hard to, to understand. So at the end of the day, you know, how do I handle those texts? I like you, you know, I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a textual critic. I'm not a New Testament scholar. But I can say as a theologian, I have seen so many people abandon their faith because they've learned something about the Bible from Bart Ehrman that they never learned from their pastor. And I think as pastors, as leaders, it actually serves people well when we invite people into these complexities. I feel like um, we've talked about this before in the podcast, but um, I feel like sometimes there's a bit of a bait and switch. We bait people to the faith with a very clear, very simple, very pretty picture of the Bible. Um, and I do think the Bible is beautiful, and I do think it's the Word of God. But I feel like uh, we we kind of hide some of this messiness from people, hoping they never discover it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, hoping to kind of keep it under, sweep it under the carpet. Um, but then we're really not preparing them for when they do encounter the reality. I mean, one of the things, AJ, that I've always had a hard time with, even though uh, I fully trust scripture, is 
the formation of the canon, the, 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 the books of the Bible, why these books? And I remember creating lectures when I first started as a professor. And I remember doing some research and just being surprised at how, from my perspective, unplanned it was how we got these books of the Bible. There was no uh, message from Peter or James, hey, we will have this many numbers, uh, this many number of texts in the Bible. They will be in this order. It, from our perspective, looking back uh, from a human standpoint, it can seem uh, ex- almost accidental. And so when I lecture on this, sometimes I'll tell my students, um, books like Revelation uh, almost didn't make it into the canon because it was being misused by certain heretics. Um, and so that kind of was kind of on the edge. Yeah. And then there are books that almost did make it into the canon, like the Didache and the Shepherd of Hermas. And if you've ever read the Shepherd of Hermas, it's weird. Um, so the, to and, know that and revelation isn't yeah. revelation is all. And that's funny. If, if, if revelation wasn't part of a Bible, I love the book of revelation, by the way, if revelation wasn't a part of our Bible, um, we would also think it was weird and we would be surprised that anyone would think it should be. But let me bring up another point in college. I encountered this strange group of people called Catholics. <laughs> Pat tip to my friend, Jeff Morrow, uh, who was one of the first Catholics I've ever kind of gotten to know. And they have these other books in their Bibles. And I remember uh, one of my good friends who's Catholic in college saying one of his favorite books in his Bible is um, Sirach. And I'm trying to, you know, and I'm looking at my Bible saying, I don't have that in my Bible. And you have something different in your Bible. I learned in seminary. The Greek Orthodox have something a bit different in their Bible, right? And then you have Jews, uh, you know, Jewish people of the Jewish religion, and they have something, obviously, they don't have the New Testament, but even their, what we call Old Testament, is a little bit different yep. uh, arrangement. Uh, and I feel like when college students or, or Christians, uh, you know, in their early parts of their faith, first encounter this non-simplicity. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, there's a disillusionment there. Absolutely. There's a disillusionment that I thought the Bible was one thing and now it's all these other things. Yes. Yes. And I feel like that leads people to start to question the Bible. It, where did it come from? Can I trust where it came from? Is it really true? Yes. Um, and and um, I want to give honest answers, but I also want to give uh, faith-forming answers to those questions as well. It, it it is an interesting the the parallels here between I, I'm observing some very interesting parallels between our last episode where we talked about how um, a certain expression of kind of Christian tradition here in America really struggles with the humanity of Jesus, mm. right? Struggles with this idea: Did Jesus learn to walk? Did Jesus actually gain wisdom? Did Jesus actually learn obedience to his parents? All these sorts of things, these human things. We talked about if Jesus doubted or not. And we don't like, it's, there's a part of us that doesn't like the humanity of Jesus. And I think there is a part of us that does not like the humanity of the Bible. That the yeah. Bible, you know, you read Paul, um, and just be clear, the, you know, Second Timothy, I mean, the, the Bible is theonoustos. It is inspired by God, but it's written by humans. Yeah. 
It is a human document that God has inspired. He has breathed his life into it. But these are documents written by people. So when you read Paul in Galatians, who is essentially cussing these churches out (laughs) for being bewitched, for being tricked, um, you know, calling them anathema, and he's using all this language that's very human. Um, We come face to face with the personality of the Bible. You even have moments in the Gospels where the gospel writers are like comparing their own journey with Jesus with the other, right? In John, he he says, I got to the tomb faster than Peter yeah, did. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's like, I'm way quicker than, I mean, these personality issues. There's a reason Romans ends with a whole chapter of greetings. These are people writing to people. And it's almost like we've done to the Bible what we did to Jesus. Yeah, We love the divine side, but we just hate the human side. And the Bible has human fingerprints all over it. Because these are human documents that God inspired. And there is not one New Testament, Old Testament scholar who is worth their weight in gold would say God wrote these books. Actually, the idea that God wrote the books uh, is more of an Islamic idea of the Bible than anything. It's not a Christian idea. Yeah. Well, you know, um, there are a couple of phenomenons throughout church history, ancient and modern, that have tried to tried to subvert that. One is um, something that happened in the early church uh, called the uh, uh, early Christian named Tatian. Mm -hmm. Uh, He recognized the differences in the gospels and he wanted to create one coherent linear gospel that has been called the Dia Tesseron. Right. And which means one out of four. And, um, there would be something nice about having just one gospel, one simple text to read, kind of take out, take the best parts and put them in the right order. And, um, and the church at first was like, Ooh, this looks interesting. And then they decided, no, we were given a fourfold witness. Yep. Uh, the fourfold witness is this idea that there are differences. There are stylistic differences. There's some thematic and difference does not mean contradiction. But there are differences between the four Gospels. And the church said, we want to retain these differences. There is oneness in them, but there's difference. And we need to be okay with that because it gives us what theologians call the fourfold witness. Yes. Rather than kind of cut and paste. That's the ancient conversation. The modern one, if you remember from, this was popular when I was young, chronological study Bible. Mm. So this is the idea, oh, why are all these Old Testament books out of order and Chronicles and Second Chronicles and, you know, First and Second Samuel and all this stuff? Let's just chop it up and put it in the correct historical order. Yep. And I had a, I had a chronological study Bible for devotions. And the idea was the way we receive this is too messy and we need to fix it. Yep. So there's this inclination in us to fix the Bible. Yes. And we do that physically, like those versions, but sometimes we do it mentally by, you know, ignoring or downplaying um, the, the human parts yes. Uh, yes. of how we got the Bible. Yeah, it's it's Easter week, right? We, uh, this week, are going to, across the board, going to read, at least when we're recording, the, the resurrection stories. And as we have four different tellings of these resurrection stories, you're going to have a lot of churches that are going to hear very different resurrection accounts yeah. because yeah. all the resurrection accounts are fundamentally, they, they tell different stories. Yeah. Um, yet the same story they tell this. And you know, all of us, I remember years ago going on a, with my wife uh, to Paris for a trip 
And when we came back and told our story of the trip, you know, we would be literally talking about the same stories, but my, the way my wife described it, Quinn is so different than the way I describe these stories, yeah. but we're telling the same story yeah. just from different vantage points. And that actually the only way you can hear the whole story is you need this diversity of, of witness. So, you know, this week when we read these four stories and you read the resurrection stories, they're so different from one another. I mean, <laughs> some of the details are just ominous and yet that actually to me becomes an argument for their veracity, why they're actually true. Um, this, um, friend of mine is a, a detective up in Portland and he told me, you know, when you're, when you're trying to figure out if a group of people did a crime, yeah. what you do is you gather the, the suspects and you put them in different rooms and you ask them, you know, tell us your story. And he said the number one sign that they're all lying is they got their story straight. Yeah, they aligned. Yeah. They got their story. And what we find in the gospels is they don't get their story straight. Yeah. And I, we may have mentioned that already at some point along the way, but I think that actually argues for why these stories are so trustworthy. They did not get their story straight. And these four different accounts are a compelling witness to the person of Jesus. And when listened to, change the human heart. When I was in seminary, I think, I came to a a realization that I thought was both hard to accept, but also strangely comforting. And I ended up passing this on to my students, even though they didn't like it. And the realization is this, in order to trust the Bible, you have to trust the church that gave us the Bible. Yes. And in order to trust the church that gave us the Bible, you have to trust the Holy Spirit. Who gave us the church. And, and, and at the bottom of it all, you know, we, 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 want, we want apologetics to solve all of our Bible problems. Uh, for example, I'll give you one of my favorite ba- bad, bad examples of apologetics. I was sitting in a sermon where someone had kind of ripped off kind of some apologetic material from, from a famous megachurch pastor. They're talking about how trustworthy the Bible is. And they talked about, I think in Job, where it says God hangs the world on nothing to say that God gave Job a scientific understanding of a spherical earth. Mm. And, and the crowd, the, the people in congregation were ooing and awing. They were so amazed that God would give modern scientific knowledge to Job. But the reality is when you read the Old Testament, you see that quite often the Old Testament refers to the four corners of the earth and the pillars of the earth. And it's really hard to subscribe to ancient writers a modern understanding of a spherical earth. Mm. Mm. We want to believe that all these biblical writers were given perfect modern knowledge of science, philosophy, you know, everything. And, and that's just not the case. Mm. Um, so I call this folk apologetics because it kind of has the, it has the kind of wrapping of being impressive, mm. Mm. Uh, but it's not. So let me give you another example. Um, scholars, uh, sorry, pastors will often say in the, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we discovered that um, they have versions of, let's say, Isaiah that are almost identical to what we used to use as the basis for our old Testament version of Isaiah, the Masoretic text, you know, a distance of hundreds of years and the text stayed essentially the same. That's actually true. The differences are very marginal, but what we don't tell people is the book of Esther is not attested in the Dead Sea Scrolls library Mm. of the old Testament. Mm. So we leave things out. When we use this folk apologetics, we're reinforcing this neat and clean 
history of the Bible. Uh, and just like you said, then, then they read a Bart Ehrman book or they read one of these kind of revisionist uh, kind of gotcha books, sensational books. And then they say, oh, you know, I was being lied to. Yep. So um, at the end of the day, my trust isn't in God dropping a pure, clean Bible leather bound on my doorstep. Uh, you know, what I tell my students is you have to trust the spirit. You have to trust the church. And if you don't like it, tough noogies. And I'll tell you what, AJ, that's many of my students said that's hard. It's hard to trust the church. The church is flawed. It's hard to trust the spirit. The spirit's invisible. The Bible's in front of me. But for whatever God's reasons are, this is how he decided to give us his word. Yes. Through flawed people that he inspired to write his infallible word of truth. Have you ever heard, Nijay, of, uh, have you ever heard of uh, Amish quilts? No. Have I ever told you about Amish quilts? Uh, Quinn pointed this this out to me. When you look at an Amish quilt, the Amish are awesome, by yeah. the way. If you've been around, I agree. Yeah, I've, I've I, I'm shoulders. from I'm from Amish country, Ohio. Yep, love so it. So I'm love, with you. Love it. Um, so the Amish make these quilts. They're very they're they're quilts are. I mean, if you just Google Amish quilts, they're absolutely mind blowing. These 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 ornate, beautiful quilts. And, but they have one thing that the Amish will do with their quilts. And that is, if you look at any Amish quilt, you will always find that there is always one stitch off in the Amish quilt. None of them are perfect. They will always leave intentionally a stitch off. I didn't know that. Yes. For one reason, the Amish believe only God is allowed to be perfect. Hmm. And they will include a stitch that's just a little off just to remind you who the perfect one is. And it's not the ones who made this quilt. Yeah. And when I think of the Bible, um, we have to remember our theology here. Our theology is we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We worship right. the Trinity. Right. We do not worship a book. Right. And um, and if we do worship a book, that we have a word for that. It's called idolatry. Mm-hmm. And I think God opted. This is the, tell me what you think as a New Testament scholar. I think God in His brilliance decided to get inspire a book written by people so that we would never equate our worship with the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, with John Wimber, who was this charismatic, he's kind of crazy charismatic yeah. guy years ago. He talked about the Bible as a menu. And he says, you know, when you go into a restaurant and you get a menu, nobody ever sits down in front of the menu and starts eating the menu. <laughs> the point of the menu is to get the stuff in the kitchen on the table. And he says, the Bible's a menu. And the point of the Bible is not the menu. The point of the Bible is not the Bible. The point of the Bible is Jesus. Yeah. And to experience a living Christ who is true and saved the world by his death and resurrection. But the minute we start eating the menu and start thinking the point is the menu, that's a pretty dry meal. Yeah. What, that, do, what do you think about that? That reminds me, one of the biggest problems with people, one of the biggest reasons, I should say, why people are disappointed with the Bible is they're using it for the wrong reasons. Um, there's a little case study I do. This might be a little offensive to the company, but there's a little case study I do when I teach hermeneutics, which is the philosophy of how to interpret the Bible. I, I, I discovered this granola bar called the Bible bar. And it's made only from the ingredients that are mentioned about the promised land. So like milk, honey, barley, you know, 
So salt's not mentioned. So it's a terrible bar. Mm. <laughs> Sugar's not mentioned mm. either. Mm. The bar tastes terrible. But I show that to my students to say, this is not the right use of the Bible <laughs> to create a health food bar. Um, people want to, people ask all these questions. Okay, the Bible doesn't match up perfectly with a specific timeline. The Bible doesn't match up perfectly with this, this, and that, and the other. I remember uh, a Old Testament scholar saying, the fundamental way to read the Bible is not as a history book, even though it includes historical events sure. like the life of Israel, the life of Jesus, life of the apostles, life of the church. It's not meant to be read as how to cure an ulcer, mm. right? There are some great tips in there about healthy life. Uh, what I've taken away from, from this scholar, I think is Brent Strawn and people like Eugene Peterson is the Bible is designed to teach wisdom. Mm. And if that is the posture that we use to read the Bible, I think a lot of those things that really bother us about the Bible are going to, we're going to be able to live with. Yes. If we treat the Bible as wisdom taught by wise teachers and not a documentary. Yep. Um, that, that to me, that has fundamentally changed how I read scripture. I don't read, you know, Eugene Peterson taught me through his books, uh, as a Christian, my goal to read scripture is not information, even though it contains information. It's formation. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many years of my Christian life I lived without understanding that very simple point. Yes. And actually, even to say for the person listening to this who may be struggling to trust the Bible, that actually that process of learning to trust God through um, these writings that maybe you have questions about is in itself an act of formation. Yeah. That God is actually forming us by our struggle with the Bible. And you and I both, there's parts of the Bible that I just don't get. I mean, sections of Joshua and um, the killing of the Canaanites and psalmic literature around dashing, you know, heads of babies. And, and um, there are things that I don't get, but actually maybe in the process of wrestling with these texts, Christ is forming me. Yeah, God is doing great work in and through me. So we've got to embrace, maybe this is a, a good way to segue to a closing here. We need to embrace a long-suffering approach to the Bible. And that is that we choose to love it over a lifetime and that we keep coming back to it over and over and over and over again the way one would suck on a on a on an everlasting gobstopper, right? <laughs> yeah. You just keep yeah. coming back. It works. And there are gonna be times stuff is gonna keep you up at night, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. No. It's it just means it's hard. Mm -hmm. Truth is hard. Truth is challenging. Um, what God wants to say to us is difficult. There's that beautiful picture in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, or excuse me, in in the Great Divorce where C.S. Lewis. He has this incredible description of the grass in heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, he says, you know, the grass is rigid and hard and it's almost like glass and humans can't really step on it. But the more you step on it, the more you can walk on it. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's something about the Bibles, the rough edges of the Bible, that the more we step on it, the more we can walk in it. Yeah. I yeah. love that. Great conversation today, EJ. Thanks for the work you do. Yeah. Same to you. This was, this was great.